This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books with me, Susan Cahill. Well, this morning's show is all about creativity and inspiration. Art historian Nicola gordon talks to me about her new book, Harry Clark, The Life and Work, and highlights just how bold, imaginative and original this Irish artist truly was. We look at the intriguing career and literary output of British writer Angela Carter, and assess her contribution to magical realism. And best-selling author Sir Ken Robinson unravels how to find your element. Firstly, you're doing something that you feel you have a natural feel for, you know, a natural talent, like you get it. But it's more than that, because there are plenty of people who do things they're good at that they don't really care for. To be in your element, you have to love it. And if you love something you're good at, then you know, your whole life goes into a different direction, because you're you're feeding yourself in a different sort of way. And, and that's the distinction I make here. It's between physical energy and spiritual energy. But first, Harry Clark was Ireland's greatest stained glass artist and arguably one of the finest of his generation. He was also an illustrator of genius whose works have been collector's items for decades. Nicola gordon new book, Harry Clark, His Life and Work, aims to represent and illustrate the life and work of this unique figure in Irish art. Now, Nicola's book has been out of print for over 15 years and this new edition will be an enormous contribution to the literature of Irish art and a collector's item in itself. Well, I have to say, if you've any Christmas book vouchers left to spend, I really recommend this book. It's an absolute treat and one to cherish. My name is Nicola gordon Bow, and I have written a book about the artist Harry Clark. It's called Harry Clark, The Life and Work. Nicola, the book is absolutely tremendous. It is such a pleasure to read. It's both visually so engaging, so stimulating, so creative. You get lost in it. It is just so exquisitely put together. For those who aren't familiar with Harry Clark, can you explain to audiences the legend that is Harry Clark and why he deserves to be called one of Ireland's greatest artists? I think that different people have different perceptions of Harry Clark. Some people know his book illustrations, particularly the tales of mystery and imagination, which have had a cult following ever since he did them in 1919 and then did them first of all in black and white and then did them in colour. And people couldn't believe how he could combine extraordinary macabre horror in painted and drawn and detailed in such exquisite details but also do incredibly beautiful colour this combination between tiny detail, beautiful design, wonderful inventiveness. I mean, the originality of his work is unsurpassed. And also extraordinary line, which he carried on with his stained glass, is really, I think, what makes him so special. Also, when you look at the work in stained glass or in book illustration, you see that he was a painter who was beyond compare. He's a miniaturist, but he was able to work on different scales. He loved working on a tiny scale, but he could 
could also do windows like the Honan Chapel windows in Cork and the Last Judgment in Newport, which a lot of people love. People have their own favourites. And the amazing thing is, he died when he was 41. And to think how much he did in that short life, his health was never good, is extraordinary. And how important was religion to Harry Clark? Because obviously we have a lot of his output in churches all across Ireland and around the world. But they're both brilliantly artistic and creative and hugely symbolic. But there's a tremendous spirituality coming from them as well, whether it's the colours that are used, whether it's how a woman or man is standing or how they're holding something. It's all very kind of transformative stuff. Yes, I think he was a person of deep spirituality. He was brought up in, well, his father was a convert to the Catholic faith, I think partly because it was a good business move. And of course, they worked with churches, but he had a terrible time often with people in the clergy who wanted to change his work, took exception to, for example, one bishop didn't like the way his angels hovered with their feet apart. Well, I think it says more about the bishop than it does about Clark. And he had a wonderful sense of humour as well. Um, He said, if people accuse me of doing gutterish, work. Well, that's their problem. But he never saw what was wrong with his work. And even when he was dying of tuberculosis, when he was in his late 30s, he was amazed that people thought his work was very daring. If licentious, obscene, some people, he could not understand because it's what flowed from his imagination. You have to remember the time in which he was working. You know, this was after the foundation of the Free State. There was a backlash of conservatism. And it would have been so interesting to have seen how he would have evolved had he carried on. I think his his spirituality, you can see, but also his his sense of fun, his sense of tragedy, his sort of heavenly vision. He really did have an extraordinary vision. Some people think it is very decadent, and he was interested in the decadent poets. But I think, in a way, you think of the imagination that he brought to it was something that I think was a really extraordinary gift. It's one thing to imagine things, but it's quite another thing to be able to capture them with his beautiful, tiny little pencil, his line, you know, Sometimes it looks as though it's been painted with the tail hair from a kitten, like the best Persian miniatures. And also the faces, I think, draw you in. Those big eyes and those beautiful gestures just gazing straight ahead. His saints are not shown in all their earthly horrors, and a lot of them live pretty tough lives, but they're shown in their heavenly splendours, though they are translated into a heavenly world that he saw quite clearly. And there's a huge sensuality to his work. How important was ballet and dance and movement to Harry Clark as an artist? Because the Ballet Russe was incredibly influential to him as an artist. And they were seen as somewhat a bit left of centre and, you know, out in the margins to a degree. Well, he always loved dance. He loved theatre. He went to the Abbey Theatre all the time. Lennox Robinson, who started the Peacock Theatre, was his great friend. He loved the Easter Day processions, for example, in Spain. But he'd always done very, very beautiful line drawings and drawings of the human body, but they're always rather sort of angular. I mean, if you think that they're not as angular as somebody like Egon Schiele, they're more like Klimt, I think. I mean, his ideal was either these very, very slender, very sensual women, or else he loved rather sort of large fat ones, but that was a sort of caricature. He was able to do a lot with the human body, but it wasn't just copied as open wood and so many of his school in a literal way. He went to the Russian Ballet, I think, because he'd seen their work. All the fashion magazines, all the art magazines were showing these wonderful colours, you know, orange and blue and red and green and Orientalism, extravagance. And so he, he went certainly to the ballet in London with Thomas Bogkin, who became the director of the National Gallery. 
Now, the unique thing about Harry Clark is while his work went all over the world, he unfortunately only got to travel in the mind. He went to the west of Ireland, he went to Paris, he went to a few little spots and obviously he was toing and froing from England throughout all his professional life. But he was so interested in travel, but he just couldn't connect it in some way. He was too busy. I mean, he started shining forth when he was at art school. He won the gold medal, which was open to all students of what was then the British Commonwealth. And that was an extraordinary thing. So he was sort of earmarked. Then he started working in his father's studio with his brother as soon as he was able to. But he also had a family. He had a wife who was a brilliant student of Orpens, a very good painter. He had three children. His brother married his wife's sister. She had four children. There was a large family. There were 27 people working in the studio after his father died, and he completely redesigned and made this state-of-the-art studio in North Frederick Street. He had a lot of people, and he had two sisters as well. They were all dependent on him. He didn't have time. He sent people out. He appointed agents. And so his work is to be found in America. But he went backwards and forwards between mostly England and Ireland. He did go to France. He loved the west of Ireland, and he was one of the first people to go. He loved, as his father said, there was nothing between him and America. But what he loved was the people, the colour. He dug into it very deeply, and it was a great source of inspiration. Nicola, should we describe Harry Clark as a craftsman? are as an artist because he's both what he brings to his art is craft and what he brings to his craft is art or is he a visual poet how do you think we should describe him I think he's all the things you say. I think perhaps I would describe him primarily as a symbolist artist. He found symbolic form for the figures of his imagination, but he was deeply literate. Like many people who don't have very good physical health, he wasn't at all sporty, and he read. He imbued his mind with images. He read all the time contemporary work. He read the decadent symbolist literature of France and England, but also much more widely. And it's the literature which inspires him. I mean, Yeats, A.E., he loved the people of his own generation who were writing and slightly older. He's part of the arts and crafts movement in that he's using materials as the essence of form. He's being guided by his materials, but he's also imposing his artistic vision on them. So he is an artist. He is a consummate craftsman, but he's not just a craftsman. He's more an artist in that his vision was so strong and so clear. He's a symbolist in the sense that symbolism covers painting, poetry. It is a way of realising your vision in visual terms. And I think perhaps he's all those things, and I think you're absolutely right. I don't think he should be pigeonholed, but primarily I think he is an artist in that he creates something extraordinarily personal and unrepeatable in his work. But the wonderful thing is that he does communicate with people, that people love him ever since I first published my book. People have loved his work, and that's what's so wonderful about a book, in that you can actually bring all the images together. I mean, trying to go around all those churches, looking at the details, people need to be led. And I think being able to show all those different strands in between the two covers of a book is something that is very, very important because it introduces people to a magical world which they may not see otherwise. And I certainly was in a magical world when I sat by my radiator last night and went through the stories that you had. And some of them are particularly moving. And I loved, you know, reading about all the different churches from Waterford, Limerick, Galway, all over Dublin, all over the country. But there's also, he did commissions, private commissions. He did famous commissions for beauties, but also for Jacob's family, which are famous for their biscuits. Yes, his illustration to the Eva St Agnes for Harold Jacob, who was of the Biscuit family, is extraordinary. And we're so lucky to have it because he lived in St Michael's, which is now a boys' school at the bottom of Earlsby Road, for the staircase. Harry Clark was given various choices and he chose that because he loved romantic poetry. He loved, again, symbolist literature. And that is the most 
purple poem that, that Keats ever wrote. So he illustrated in his wonderful miniature technique these scenes, and you read them like a comic, a strip cartoon. And what's so wonderful is that afterwards it was rescued by one of the people who'd been in the studio, bought by him, and then I found it under the bed of this artist's widow, and we managed to acquire it for the Hugh Lane Gallery, and we are so lucky to have it there. Because what's fascinating about Clark, you mentioned about, you know, Catholic, Protestant. He also, for example, did the Irish War Memorials at the same time he was doing the Eve of St. Agnes for what's now in Island Bridge. But at the same time, he was doing the little commemorative booklet for Arthur Griffith and Michael Collins after they'd been assassinated. He stood apart from politics, but of course he was working at a time. I mean, he had to literally go up O'Connell Street during the 1916 Rising because he had to get from Black Rock up to North Frederick Street. But he soared through it all, and private patrons loved his work. There were various commissions, like the Harold Jacob window, which now, thank goodness, everybody can see. But there are others that have gone and are in private collections still, because people loved having these precious little things in their houses they could gaze at. But on the other hand, we can go to churches. We can go and look at them. And remember always to turn the lights off. Don't let any light be in front of the glass. And then we can go and look at these little treasures. And they change throughout the day. And that's their magic. One of the things I'm interested to know is that he was, you know, such an intense worker. He worked, worked and worked and he died at just 41. And as he said, in his 30s, he was relatively unwell. How did this affect his mental health? Because he was clearly very unwell for a long time, yet he managed to overextend himself. He actually raced through the work and he actually got better and better and better. So how did he pull that off? Like the Geneva window, which was his last great commission, is one of the most beautiful pieces of art. Yet he was a dying man doing that. Well, his mother had died of tuberculosis when he was very young and he always had problems with his respiratory canal. So he was never in very strong health. I'm sure his chest was bad and had various operations when he was young. But then he had two bad bicycle accidents, fell off his bicycle. And then what was called incipient neuralgia, but turned out to be tuberculosis, started to race, as it often does, sadly, with young people like Beardsley, of course, he's often compared with, but who died the same death. And um, the only way he could really manage was he rented a studio in London. And so he'd go over to this. He had a great friend who he'd stayed with when he was very young, who was a marvellous day glass artist and he booked the studio for him and then he just would have nothing he would leave his brother in Dublin and he wouldn't have anything to do with it he would occasionally go on visits site visits but he would work on his own work he did the Swinburne illustrations he did some of the fast illustrations trying to escape because he could not cope with all the studio work at the same time towards the end of his life it's really terrible because he could hardly breathe he kept on well he went to Spain first of all with Lennox Robinson then he went down to the south of France where actually Yeats was also on the way out but later on but he went and met him. Lady Lavery was also very ill. She was down there. And then he went to Switzerland, to Davos, and had all sorts of treatments and fresh air, mountain air. But, you know, he pulled through, came back and relentlessly worked. But then it was too much. And, you know, he squeezed every last drop out of himself. And he was trying to get back to Ireland when he died on his way back from Switzerland to Ireland. And he's described so beautifully in some of the reflections in your book from different people as being unbelievably charismatic, as being a total one-off, as a very inspirational character, very warm, a very humble, 
very unaffected by his huge international success. So if we could imagine what the world would have been had we had an 82-year-old Harry Clark, it would be a very different playing field, wouldn't it? It's so difficult to know, isn't it, how? Because some artists burn themselves out and just carry on. I don't think he would have done. I think he was too clever and lively and intelligent. And he had a wonderful sense of humour. He was a great joker. I suppose he'd have to have delegated. He longed to have a studio in London. He loved, as so many people do, he loved the theatre. He loved the lack of tightness. And there was a lot of religious, well, not religious, but, you know, repression in the church at that time. Not religious indeed at all. And state repression also. Absolutely, and state oppression. I mean, President Cosgrave was a supporter, but the trouble is the tide was against the sort of wild work that he was doing. And in a way, you could say it was a bit disingenuous of him to have imagined that this window, you know, when Ireland was becoming more and more reactionary, could represent the new free state in Geneva. But he, he thought that he was being, tr- even to choose, you know, James Joyce, who, of course, was censored. And the bit out of Mr. Gil Hooley is a very naughty bit in, the, in a book that was banned anyway. I think he thought that it was just part of life. You know, he lived up on the North Circular Road. He saw all life around him. And I think he just thought it was his Dublin and he was going to show what it was. What would he have been like now? It's so hard to tell. But maybe he was just so ahead of his time Mm. because the Geneva window now in contemporary society is just seen for its beauty, its magic, its exquisite movement, its light and its tremendous craftsmanship. But maybe he just was just too far out there for the state to actually recognise. I think he was, and I think he was never, never going to compromise his vision at all. He never would. He would never damp down anything. He would just actually refuse commissions if things got difficult. And that was the same with the other glass people of of his generation, the people who would toady and who would compromise and not the great artist. What's interesting is that he was also a very good teacher, and I think he would have done more editorial work. He would love to. He wanted to illustrate all sorts of books, like Baudelaire, for example, that he couldn't do. He'd love to have done more of that. He'd love to have had, I think, studios in Dublin and London. That would have been really, really exciting. And then he could have escaped from the oppression that he saw was becoming increasingly so. But then he had terrible mother superior in England who was awful to him. And the thing is, the studios could not afford to let the public know how ill he was because everybody wanted his work. Nobody wanted studio work. Well, of course, they didn't know that the studio was actually very good, but they wanted his work because they realised he had a touch of genius. And that touch of genius was recognised throughout the world because some of the greatest poets of the time, writers, intellectual thinkers, all wanted to meet, work or collaborate in some way with Harry. Well, when he was working on the Geneva window and he was in London, he saw Yeats regularly. He illustrated Yeats's Countess Kathleen in the Geneva window, but he was all the time, um, he, he was a great friend of his. And he was, yes, I, he, he mixed in artistic circles. He was, his opinion was sought. He was, became a judge in various competitions. He was very much loved and respected. The funny thing is that although there was that wild side to his art, I don't think it seemed to... I mean, he sent the Bishop of... Um, well, in Letterkenny, he sent him a copy of his Swinburne illustrations. Even one of those had to be censored and couldn't be published in the end. And he said, heaven knows what the Bishop thought when he received this book, which is very decadent. But then there were beautiful images in it. He did not see that there was any discrepancy between what he saw in his mind's eye and what he put down on the page or in a church window. Now, I thought about ending today's interview with some lovely poetry from Keats to embrace the Eve of St. Agnes. And it's such a romantic and exhilarating and fantastic poem. But there's actually an obituary in your book 
which really rings through and says exactly just how great Harry Clark is. Nicola, I'm going to ask you to read out the wonderful Lennox Robinson's tribute to Harry. He was a very good friend of Harry's and he was another unbelievably gifted artist, creator, playwright. He set up the Peacock Theatre. And it's very intimate, it's very humble what he writes, but rings through exactly what an extraordinary talent Harry was. Yes, Lennox Robinson was the person who rescued him, really, when he became so ill and he just had had driven himself down. He was the person who went out to Switzerland to see him. He looked after Harry Clark's widow and he also helped to establish the studio that would carry on his work. So I think it's fitting to read that. He wrote, People who write books and plays and poems have their work put away on shelves where it may lie for years, unopened and unread. Harry Clark, in the East End or transept of many a church in Ireland and elsewhere, comes to life with every dawn and will have his daily resurrection until the bomb drops. He thought his best work was his earliest, for instance, the windows he did for the Honan Chapel in University College Cork. What is the use of railing? Yet the things one sees in bus and tram and drawing room, graveyards in Switzerland might be filled with them and the world would be no jot the poorer. For anyone who's interested in seeing, you know, Harry Clark and seeing some of his work throughout Ireland, he's in Cork, he's in Wexford, he's in Monaghan, in Mayo, he's all across the country. Well, I think the Honan Chapel, as Lennox Robinson said, is very, very important. Make sure you've got the lights off when you go to see them and spend a long time on each of his windows. He did 11 in there. You can also go to the Crawford Gallery and you can see the designs for the Eve of St Agnes, which is in the Hugh Lane Gallery, which was called a revel in blue when he did it. It's an absolute marvel masterpiece and really look at it and read it and enjoy it and see how magically it's put together that the details never override the entire thing. Go to Wexford to Bride Street Church and look at the wonderful details there. Go to Kalini in Dublin and go and see his little angel nestling there and go over to Mayo to see The Last Judgment. There's a list in the back of the book which advises you. Go to Terranure in Dublin too which is wonderful but have a look at the list and take it as a little gazetteer and go and look at them.
And in case you were wondering what the beautiful music you were listening to there was, we heard the spellbinding music of This Is How We Fly. Coming up next, we're going to delve into the magical world of British writer Angela Carter. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.